Welcome to ClinFarm Pod. I'm Elena Webster, Deputy Managing Editor for the ASCPT Family of Journals. My guests today are Dr. Ramey Moore, Assistant Professor, Office of Community Health and Research, Department of Internal Medicine, College of Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences, and Dr. Pearl McElfish, Professor of the College of Medicine and Director of Community Health and Research at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. We're also welcoming back Dr. Erica Woodall, Professor at the University of Montana and an Associate Editor for Clinical and Translational Science, who will be serving as our moderator for this conversation. Welcome, Ramey and Pearl and Erica. It's so good to have you back. Thank you all for joining us. Our discussion today will center on two papers recently published in CTS, the Vaccine Hesitancy Continuum Among Hesitant Adopters of the COVID-19 Vaccine and Hesitant Adopters, an Examination of Hesitancy Among Adults in Arkansas Who Have Taken the COVID-19 Vaccine. Both important articles as scientists globally work to increase uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine. I read both of these papers with great interest, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing both of you, Pearl and Ramey, discuss your work. And with that, I'm going to turn things over to Erica. Thank you very much, Elena. I'm excited to be back here with you on another podcast. Um, Ramey, we'll start with you. Can you start by helping us to differentiate between vaccination status and vaccine hesitancy? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that is really important and critical for some of the work that Pearl's been doing and that I've been doing is distinguishing between the way that people are thinking and feeling about vaccines, um, how they're maybe making decisions about vaccines versus the behavior of getting vaccinated. One of the things that has been true for a lot of the research on vaccine hesitancy is Sometimes it's conceptualized in a way where once you get vaccinated, we stop measuring or paying attention to or even thinking about you as being hesitant because you got vaccinated. And yet one of the things that one of our colleagues um, and another work that we've, we've done has shown is that a quite large percentage of folks who were getting or were fully vaccinated for COVID-19 retained feelings of hesitancy about the vaccine that they received um, in spite of becoming vaccinated. And so for a lot of our work, I think pulling out that idea of, well, I still feel hesitant and thinking of vaccination not as a single event, but as a process really helps us pull apart some of the thornier issues about, you know, this rise in vaccine hesitancy as a salient cultural and social issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that distinction seems really important, um, especially when we're thinking about, you know, continued booster vaccination campaigns in the future. Uh, Pearl, because I think it's relevant to ground today's discussion within the timeline of the COVID pandemic, would you walk us through the infection rates reported uh, now in January of 2023? As infection rates continue to go up and down really across the nation through the winter months, this continued discussion about vaccination overall is critical. And The exploration of hesitant adopters for our research team was really birthed out of some of my my own convictions and realizing that I myself was somewhat hesitant to get a brand new vaccine. And at the same time, I was very actively seeking out the ability to get the vaccine. And we became concerned that people were being dichotomized into two groups. 
they were either hesitant and not going to get the vaccine or they were not hesitant and going to seek the vaccine. And so that distinction and the ability to understand the complexity of human thoughts, feelings, and behavior, and not just dichotomize people into two groups was critical. And as we go through the winter months and we see rises in COVID-19, as well as flu cases, it's really critical to conceptualize vaccine hesitancy and vaccine behavior as something that can coexist and really honoring the fact that people may have a continuum of feelings and thoughts about vaccine and we can still motivate them to get vaccinated, both for their own benefit, as well as the benefits of those they love and society. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, especially as your comment with a new vaccine, you know, there's very reasonable reasons to be, you know, kind of concerned and a little bit hesitant about getting a brand new thing. Um, Ramey, could you tell us about the vaccine hesitancy continuum? Yeah. And, you know, to, to start out, the idea of vaccine hesitancy being somewhat of a continuum is not a brand new concept totally. However, I think in the past it's been used more just to talk about the range of potential concerns and issues that people might hold that lead them to feel hesitant. However, in my paper, I was really thinking about um, the differences among hesitancy as people are self-reporting their own level of hesitancy. So, you know, when somebody says, I'm a little hesitant, one of the questions that we went into uh, analyzing these interviews that make up the bulk of the data from my paper was, is there going to be a, a range or difference of, of these concerns? Is there going to be something that makes it feel different when somebody actually says, I'm moderately hesitant or I'm very hesitant? And so for, for my paper, that's really where the, the hesitancy continuum is focused on this scale of, you know, very to a little hesitant. Yeah, great. So Pearl, this one to you. You conducted a national survey to examine vaccine hesitancy amongst those who did eventually receive at least one dose of the vaccine. And then you created a code book for analyzing individual level data. Would you give us a brief description of the survey and then tell us about that development of the code book? In the development of the survey, we really relied upon validated measures that had come out from NIH and the CDC around the COVID-19 hesitancy questions. What was unique was this asking about hesitancy among the vaccinated, as opposed to assuming that they were dichotomous. And then in the deeper exploration of that, knowing that we really needed to create a more in-depth qualitative code book to, to understand the why. And it's one of the reasons that I love mixed methods and love working with colleagues like Dr. Moore to be able to go back and forth between the quantitative survey measures that say, how hesitant are you? You know, none, very little, or, or, or a lot, um, very hesitant. And did you get vaccinated? Yes or no. And to be able to take it from that quantitative correlation analysis to a much more in-depth of saying, why were you hesitant? And then if you were hesitant, including very hesitant, why did you choose to get vaccinated? And can you walk us through that process? And so really excited to do that mixed methods research, starting with the quantitative and then going back to the qualitative. 
Yeah, I agree. That's it's such a great method to to delve in a little bit more towards what the answers are. Whereas a quantitative, you 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 can't you don't understand the context on the answers. So that's great. Um, so from there, you identified three main levels of vaccine hesitancy. Lay out these three groups for me: their commonalities, differences, and areas in which they might intersect. It is a little bit complicated to just sort of you know broad brush the levels of hesitancy, but there were quite a few patterns in the differences across, um, you know, what themes we were identifying as being critical for for people in hesitancy, what exactly they were concerned about. So, you know, for the the little hesitant, which was the the lowest level of hesitancy that we included um, as part of that validated measure, a lot of the same themes arise, right? It's not that the themes are completely different from each of the groups. It often is the amount of focus on a specific theme, and then the sort of interrelation or bundle of themes and how those are presented by individuals because they're interrelated. One of the things that that I think is really important to think about for each of these groups is that, you know, there isn't just, well, if you tell the very hesitant this, that addresses their main concern and fixes, and this is the, the magic wand that does that. So for example, for the little hesitant, a lot of the focus there was on side effects, adverse reactions to the vaccine, not an uncommon concern for a lot of people, right? They mentioned um, some of the, the other issues like being free to choose, not wanting to feel pressured to, to be or become vaccinated. But a lot of their concerns seem to center around ideas of, is it right for me? Does it promote my health in an effective way. And as we move, you know, towards the moderate or somewhat hesitant, we start to see some similarities, except, you know, for the moderately hesitant, a lack of information, uh, a feeling that they didn't know what kind of information to trust to address some of these same concerns, side effects, the speed of the development of the vaccine, I think only one person mentioned a conspiracy theory from the the little hesitant group. We see about 7.7% of the themes for the the somewhat hesitant start to incorporate ideas of, well, we can't trust whatever group or we can't trust the information. You know, the CDC is untrustworthy. These things start to arise um, as being more important. And then when we hit the hesitant category, Again, we're still seeing a lot of mentions of side effects, the speed of development, a little bit less of a focus on lack of information. The very hesitant felt like they had access to the information that they needed. Unfortunately, about 30.5% of their mentions of you know related themes had to do with pharmaceutical companies or public health authorities or government officials, including a range of political affiliations as being the source of these fears of side effects, the fears about the development and testing of the vaccine. So instead of it being a personal focus, it becomes this more externally focused, conspiracy theory oriented way of approaching, well, I'm afraid of uh, side effects because I can't trust the people who made this, which differed markedly from the kinds of narratives that we saw in either of the other two groups. Yeah, no, it did. I'd be interested. Could you talk about those other two groups? Um, did you get a sense of what they considered to be trustworthy information sources? Yeah, um, for uh, unsurprisingly, for the the little hesitant, a lot of their answers do seem to focus on 
people that I would find trustworthy myself, right? So thinking about public health officials, you know, folks specifically mentioning important medical figures who who became kind of uh, celebrity status during the pandemic, like Dr. Fauci. We did have people also mention political figures like President Joe Biden being being somebody who, depending on a person's political affiliation for the little hesitance, he seemed to be more authoritative as a source. So again, the institutional actors, researchers, medical schools, you know, who we think of as, as maybe being authoritative about vaccines, about illness. For the somewhat hesitant, I think there was a lot more ambiguity about what constituted an authoritative source, what they were looking for or who they needed to get a message from that they felt like, yes, I, I do trust this. I think shifting much more to people in their life, family members, for both the little hesitant and the somewhat hesitant, I think personal physicians having access to a physician with whom you have a long-term relationship also seemed to be something that that matters. And sometimes these overlap, right? If you, uh, I remember some of the interviews talking about, oh, well, my, my daughter, who's a nurse, said I should get the vaccine. And she told me this information. And I really trusted her opinion because of her medical training. That social proximity came up enough that it did seem to be a pattern amongst some of these responses. Thank you. Within the group that you described as being very hesitant, can you expand a little on why they had so little fear of contracting COVID, even with infection rates so high? I mean, one of the things, and this is not necessarily a major focus for the paper we're talking about today, but is something that is coming up as part of ongoing research and ongoing interviews and, and surveys that, that we are currently conducting. One of the things that I'm hearing a lot of is that as the virulence or or the narrative of virulence, the, the way that COVID is spoken about as being, well, it's less likely to cause your death. Um, and that focus on, well, if not as many people are dying, it must be safe now. There's a, a little bit of a, a leap there that's occurring. And I don't think it's occurring just for the very hesitant either. I, I think for a lot of folks, they just feel like the risk of illness that impacts them in a very strong way. So either death, the hospitalization, you know, a lot of people talk about that, the fear of being on a ventilator, those outcomes not being as common really does seem to impact how people are estimating their own risk. And Dr. McElfish, I, I'm sure you have some other to add. I, I very much agree. I think that it's a combination of things. I think that people do have reduced fear, particularly now that there are treatment um, medications and that the hospitals are not overwhelmed. I also think there seems to be a move away from, particularly within that group, the need to do it for societal purposes and that it is really if they are not scared of dying. And so even in our qualitative analysis, it did seem to be a shift away within that group that they really were less motivated by the fact that that they may spread to others. And so I do think that both of those things have been been motivators to to make them less likely to be vaccinated. Yeah. Um, just to to hop in, Erica, briefly, um, you know, I was just sort of skimming over some of the the quotes in the article. And I think 
one really stands out. We spoke to uh, a 56-year-old Hispanic man, and one of the things that that he said about the pandemic in general was his perception that in spite of being vaccinated, he thinks that the danger and the the risk and the overall harm of COVID-19 the illness was uh, using his words blown out of proportion and that you know for for him that fear of the the illness wasn't a major driver of his vaccination decision making interesting yeah do you so you mentioned he's uh, 57 i think you said um did you see difference across people's perspective across age, age groups you know one of the things that i think is is interesting. And, you know, with qualitative samples, again, it's really, really hard to know or to be able to do some of those quantitative techniques where we can have some confidence in what we're saying. We didn't focus on that as a major aspect of the the analysis. And one of the reasons being that organizing principle was not gender, it wasn't uh, race or ethnicity, it wasn't age, it wasn't income or education level, it was how hesitant were you? That's not to say that if we were to do this and expand on these findings and really um, be looking as as we are doing about building on this, that we might find some of those those differences. But you know, with uh, forty nine interviews, it just makes it hard to to say for sure if that answers your question. Sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see with your future work if you see some differences across age groups. And the nice thing is, again, mixed methods that with the quantitative work, we we definitely were able to do the more granular analysis regarding age, sex, race, and ethnicity. And across multiple of our articles, as well as nationally, it tends to hold that older people are less hesitant of vaccination, younger people are more hesitant. We have seen a little bit of dip in that you know, the very young, when we've had a high enough sample, have been less hesitant than those, say, in their 30s. And then it tracks that, you know, you get a little bit more hesitant with 30s, and then it goes down pretty uniformly by age. I think one of the interesting things across most of our studies and and most other studies is that females tend to be more hesitant than males. I think the really interesting thing to me and the disparities work that we've been doing is that there is really mixed results based on race and ethnicity. And we often like to say that minority races are less vaccinated because they're more hesitant, but the results of our work and others really don't hold that to be true. And there, we believe there are many um, barriers beyond hesitancy that have reduced vaccination rates for COVID and also for other vaccines. Yeah, I agree. I work with indigenous populations in Montana, and actually that group is more highly vaccinated than other groups in the states. So yeah, it definitely doesn't hold up against all races and ethnicities. You're absolutely right, Erica. And research that we will publish very soon has shown that minority populations, in particular Hispanic, Pacific Islander, Marshallese for Arkansas and African-Americans, the rates of COVID-19 vaccine have actually surpassed the general public. And 
That's why this translational research is so important because we have learned through the process and been able to target messages, target interventions. And, you know, while it certainly was not a randomized control trial, we believe we were able to shift some of the outcomes. Great. Thank you. Um, So circling back a little more to trustworthy communication, we know that many of these conspiracy theories were widely spread across various social media platforms. And what people see and interact with on these platforms is becoming increasingly siloed. Um, Do you have suggestions for relaying accurate information to people who are very hesitant as a result of some of of these conspiracy theories that you mentioned previously? You know, it's hard to know. And, you know, since the focus for this research wasn't doing some of those trials or tests or uh, ways of assessing the the effectiveness of given you know communication strategies or or those kinds of behavior change model focused work what i will say is that one of the things that seemed clear is that for the very hesitant there is almost a, a different perception of how and where knowledge is produced and how trustworthy knowledge comes to be produced. And part of the conspiracy theory mindset reflected in their responses is that the normal means through which we produce scientific knowledge is actually not seen as being authoritative, right? So if it comes from a university, if it's been peer-reviewed, you know, those are intended to be markers of quality of at least a minimum level of authoritativeness in the information being provided, a clinical trial, the all of the testing and data that went into approval and evaluation of the vaccines across all the different manufacturers, those exact means of producing reliable, comprehensible, useful information are actually perceived as being untrustworthy inherently um, in some ways. And so part of the problem, I think, beyond just a messenger or a message, but actually may involve multi-component or, or multi-scalar interventions that have to address what is perceived as authoritative, uh, how these, this kind of information is published, where it's presented, how accessible it is, in addition to some of these other things like maybe fighting back against algorithms that promote content that reaffirms your belief that uh, Pfizer is somehow nefarious in the production of this vaccine. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think um, something we think about a lot in our work is how researchers need to be, I mean, they need to do a bit better job about really accurately communicating what the research is to people and telling why it's valuable, you know, instead of just that published paper. And believe me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that that a lot of folks mentioned is that they don't have reliable ways for receiving information from public health officials or staying up to date on that information. You know, for the somewhat hesitant group, it seemed like there was a lot of confusion about, well, where do I even go? And if I find it, I don't know that it's the most accurate or the most up-to-date, or it doesn't give me any indication for how to implement this as part of my health decision-making processes, where uh, it seems like some of the conspiracy theory-oriented media, they're happy to tell you exactly how you should use their information and why it should motivate you to avoid vaccination or why 
you should regret. Um, I talked to some folks in recent interviews who described their feeling about vaccination as one of extreme regret. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, it's, it, I, I saw that too, you know, it was sometimes hard to find the right sources and, and where to get it. And, you know, and I say that as a research scientist, you know, so I know it was a, it was a tough time for a lot of people. Remy, for the study, you requested demographic data from participants. Would you walk me through what data was generated? What were, what was the breakdown of participants and why you felt this information was vital uh, to have for the study results? So, you know, one of the things that we collected for this national sample, you know, we we wanted to know age, gender, race and ethnicity, level of education, and we we also wanted to make sure that we got a broad distribution geographically since it was, you know, 50 interviews is what we we were targeting and we wanted to make sure that we were not regionally overly biased in in terms of sampling. So we collected sort of roughly Northeast, Midwest, South and West interviews targeting all of those regions. You know, I think one of the things that for a qualitative study is important is that what your demographics are is part of the story of whatever questions you're being asked. For our particular qualitative work, you know, uh, Dr. McElfish, I'm, I'm sure can um, talk more to the survey data where we're powered to actually look at some of these differences across uh, race and ethnicity, across gender, um, age and income, that kind of thing. But for for understand, understanding, you know, this particular sample, you know, we had a really, really broad distribution of folks ranging from, you know, 18 to 24, all the way to, uh, I think we had six interviews with people over the age of 65. We had roughly equal male and female participation in the interviews. I think one of the important things about this particular sample is that diversity in race and ethnic background, including folks identifying as American Indian or Alaska Native. Um, We had uh, a relatively large number of folks identifying as Hispanic. We had eight Hispanic participants, uh, 17 identifying as Black or African American, uh, nine identifying as Asian, and 12 uh, folks identifying as white, with the last one being a a Native Hawaiian or Pacific Islander interview participant. So hopefully that gives us a little bit of the ability to see that vaccine hesitancy continuum does seem to hold true that the concerns and hesitancy that people are holding isn't just correlated with specific region, age, gender, or race or ethnicity, amongst other potential demographic characteristics. Thank you. So based on these findings, do you think targeted communications based on demographic groups would help reduce vaccine hesitancy? And do you have some examples you could share with us? We have taken the information that we've learned from these two studies and others and really worked across the state to target um, communications, both by demographic and I think most importantly, by educating providers and developing communications um, campaigns that really acknowledge people's hesitancy. So to be very specific, we have worked with providers to train them to not assume if someone's coming in to get vaccinated that they're not hesitant and to really talk with them about that process, make sure that they are asking if the patient has any questions. And then we have done some very broad communications, public health campaigns that really focus on, you may have questions, 
you may not be certain. And we are here to talk with you and walk through this process with you. We have done that at UAMS and have also worked very closely with our Department of Health. And I think importantly now with child vaccinations, our children's hospital to really shift the way that public health campaigns are being conducted and that providers are talking to patients as they talk about vaccines. And we are hopeful that this shift and this type of campaign really evolves to focus on flu and evolves to focus on HPV vaccinations and other vaccinations that are critical to our public health, but are often um, not not conceived as hesitant adopters. Just to briefly add a, maybe just a little bit there is that, you know, the targeting that Dr. McElfish is talking about, those tools for refining those interventions, so, you know, how to implement them, how to train as we refine and pull apart some of these issues with, you know, what actually gets somebody through the door, but maybe looking ahead to what makes somebody comfortable with the process of vaccination, with asking questions, knowing which questions to ask their provider or building a relationship with a provider that they can go to someone and get a trustworthy, personalized, face-to-face discussion about exactly what is in their bundle of, of concerns or what is driving their hesitancy in a way that works for them. Um, and so I think while targeting based on demographics is definitely something that we do pursue, we use our tools as we're refining these further, I think it's likely that our ability to do so is going to improve in the future as well. There's a lot of opportunity there, at least. Yeah, really. And have an opportunity for patients to be respected and heard their concerns or for hesitancy. The paper also mentions that there really hasn't been much done to study vaccine adoption among those who were initially hesitant. Why aren't there previous studies considering that vaccine hesitancy and refusal has been on the rise in the U.S. for quite a while now and didn't necessarily originate with the COVID-19 vaccine? It is really a travesty that there has not been more research in vaccine hesitancy for childhood vaccinations, HPV, flu, as well as COVID. And I think the primary reason has been this conflation in the literature of vaccine behavior and feelings about the vaccine. And it's really astounding when you think about as scientists, we understand that you can have thoughts and feelings about something and behave in a different way. But for some reason with vaccination, those have been conflated in the vast majority of literature. And our goal, and certainly there are other researchers as well, are really pushing to have research across the different vaccinations that that remove that and are really looking at thoughts, feelings, and behavior separately, as well as the interplay between those. Thank you. So this final discussion is for both of you. Um, And Remy, I'll start with you. I think that the results of your studies can be extrapolated to convince unvaccinated people to receive vaccinations? I mean, I think there are some indicators that maybe not all hesitant folks, there are very hesitant folks for whom the only method to get them vaccinated is not something that, you know, we would condone as a society, right? It's it's not something that fits with how we approach health or governance and, and health behavior. But what I do think that papers like this can help us do 
is do some of the things that we're we're doing here with this research, which is to refine those tools for providing and thinking through, you know, what is it? Because we know that hesitancy is dynamic, it changes, and things that happened to you in previous encounters with uh, vaccination and things you've heard in the past affect your future decision-making. And so I think as we refine and think about this as a process, identifying what we really do need not just to know that a vaccine is safe, not just to have someone say it's safe, not just to have an authoritative person say that it's safe. We actually need to make it accessible that somebody can go and say, yes, I understand what was done in this study, what this data says, and I can go there myself and I can parse and read through. And if that's what I need to address my fears of the safety or efficacy of the vaccine, that is present. And so we do all those other things in addition, I think, is what one of the directions that's that's pointed to by my paper on, on the continuum is that we may need to be doing all of these things all at once, um, or at least refining the tools that we do have that we, we can deploy. Great. Thank you. And then Pearl, the same question, but could you also talk about people who did receive at least one initial dose, but haven't returned for their booster dose and how your research might help in convincing these people that boosters are important? We're very excited to have that question because we are finishing up a paper now that really examines how hesitancy affects people getting their booster shots, their third and fourth shots. And what we find is that hesitancy does indeed continue and can influence whether or not they get their booster shots. And I think that's critical for the communications because once someone gets vaccinated, our job with that discussion, our job with education is not yet done. And that process of reducing hesitancy and informing the patients or participants needs to continue. Um, it's not a one and done. If there is one takeaway from Dr. Moore's paper and our work overall, it is that the communication about vaccination should be dynamic. Just because someone gets vaccinated once doesn't mean they're no longer hesitant and that they'll get their boosters. And just because someone's hesitant now and has not yet gotten vaccinated does not mean that they will not become vaccinated if given the opportunity and their, their questions were answered. And again, this is critical for COVID, but it's even more critical as we think about childhood vaccines, flu, HPV, and all of the other infectious disease that can affect our communities and particularly underserved populations. Right. Well, we look forward to that next study and please consider publishing again in CTS and we'll have you back for another Clean Farm pod. I will. I 100% committed to all my work being translational research and I'm just so thrilled with the journal and how it is promoting research that really makes a practical everyday difference in rural communities like Arkansas and Montana. So thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. Well, thank you too. And this has been a great discussion and it was, I really enjoyed speaking with both of you. Thank you both again for a great discussion. And Elena, back to you. Thank you.
Thanks, Erica. And thank you, Pearl and Remy. This was not only a fascinating conversation, but I think also a very important one. Um, and Erica, you've once again been an outstanding moderator. We just love having you all on the podcast. So uh, thank you all for your time, your expertise, and your work to increase uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine and all vaccines, really. For our listeners, you can find Pearl and Ramey's papers linked in the description of this episode, as well as links to a previous episode on vaccine hesitancy as it intersects with race and trust of science and the government. It's also moderated by Erica, and it's an excellent listen, so check it out. Thank you for listening to ClinFarm Pod. Be sure to check out past episodes while you're here, and remember to visit ASCPT.org for updated podcast releases, our latest webinars, and the most recent issue of all three journals.